Well, thanks so much, Harlan, for, for joining me today. It's it's a real honor and privilege for me. I, like, like we were talking a little bit before, I've been following you guys for, for a while now, just because there's not not many uh, you know, people in the in the media space on sort of the investment side or you know, looking at ways to enhance, you know, independent media around the world. So it's it's a really you know, powerful statement that you and your team are making. And it, it really gives, you know, me optimism and hope for this industry to, to keep on plugging away in a world that, you know, changes every day from, from a media landscape. But let, let's talk about a little bit about your journey first before we get into what MDIF is doing and, and, and sort of the course it's taken and, and the, the maturations it, it's had over the years. Talk a little bit about your journey and how you even got to MDIF in the first place. Well, first of all, thank you for uh, inviting me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about what we do. You know, I think the work you're doing is really important, bringing, um, kind of elevating mm-hmm. uh, this sector and exploring it, you know, with actually quite a lot of depth. So I really appreciate that. Appreciate it. My journey, either it's been a very long journey or it was a journey that happened a long time ago, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been uh, with... Media Development Investment Fund, MDIF, now for 22 years, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a bit of a, a, wow. a life's work, I guess, at this point. So, you know, how did I get here? I'm a lapsed lawyer. <laughs> so I, uh, I practiced law and I was practicing law at a, one of the large law, fir- law firms doing litigation. And I knew that wasn't what I wanted to do with my life. And I, I was looking for, you know, more meaningful opportunities. Um, and I had a chance to uh, move take a position with the George Soros's foundation, the Open mm-hmm. Society. Back then it was Open Society Institute um, as deputy general counsel. So that was my you know, kind of first big shift. And I guess my, my first step on a path of downward mobility. So, <laughs> um, um, so I was there for about a year and a half. And I realized you know, what the foundation did, you know, really incredible work. And they still do incredible work. But what I realized was being in-house counsel at a foundation was not as intellectually challenging, I would mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. That's what I had been doing previously. And, you know, there's a certain amount of paper pushing. And sure. there's also the sense, you know, I wanted to kind of be on the other side of the table, you know, not you know, just facilitating what other people were doing, but being, you know, much more directly engaged in the actual work itself. Mm-hmm. So when I started at OSI, I had a matter that was bringing me Prague on a regular basis. You know, so Open Society Institute of Soros Foundations, you know, there it's a global operation. They have many, many, many local foundations, you know, all over the world and various programs that are kind of operating on a global level. So one of these things was happening in Prague I, I needed to deal with. And since I was going there, somebody said I should sit down with this guy, Sasha Vucinic, mm-hmm. um, who had started up this little uh, organization called Media Development Loan Fund at the time. And that's because I had, you know, I had done a lot of intellectual property work. I had been you know, helping uh, my law, f- law firm build their, what we called back then their new media practice. So this was just to give you how sense of how old I am. <laughs> uh, this was, you know, kind of the dawn of the dot-com era. So, yeah, um, you know, we were literally still showing people like, this is the internet. Um, so I had been engaged with media and I had done a fair amount of free speech cases um, and other things. So, so I met this guy, Sasha Vucinich, and, you know, Sasha was the his co-founder of MDLF at the time. So uh, <laughs> Sasha is a Serbian journalist uh, and really a real visionary. You know, one of those really wonderful visionaries that one gets to meet rarely in, in this life. The other co-founder was a journalist named Stuart Auerbach. He was a, a longtime journalist at the Washington Post. And, you know, Sasha had helped found a radio station in Serbia, in Belgrade, called huh. Radio B92. And Radio B92, so this was, you know, since the mid-90s, the Milosevic regime was in control of Serbia. The wars were kind of raging around yeah. Yeah. the former Yugoslavia. And B92 became the, the leading independent media outlet in, in Serbia and probably the region. And in a way, it was much bigger than just a radio station. Um, it became kind of the, the focal point for the segment of Serbia that looked towards the West, hmm. as opposed to, you know, the kind of the medieval blood and armor history. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, that kind of defined the Milosevic view of the world. Uh, there was a certain point where he had gotten drafted. You know, this is one way that the Milosevic huh. regime dealt dealt with their interesting, um, yeah, their opponents. They would draft them, and so so Sasha had to. You know, it was time to leave Serbia, and 
he got a position with Open Society as a media consultant, basically helping other people all over you know, the region and you know the, the states of the former Soviet Union, starting up independent radio stations. And kind of looking at his experience you know, running one of these things and the experience of these other folks, but he had uh, this insight, which was that what, you know, there, there were lots of organizations giving, you know, small grants to these media outlets, um, kind of treating them as, as, as almost like small nonprofits, right. even though they were operating as commercial media companies. And I guess just to, to, to frame the time that this was all taking place. So this is the, you know, so MDLF was founded in, in late 1995 and did its first uh, investment in 1996. So this was only, you know, six years after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Right. Um, uh, Europe was completely reorganizing for the first time in many, many countries, there was an opportunity to build independent media and, you know, a lot of trailblazing journalists were taking a shot at that. And what Sasha's insight was that, you know, the, the, the real problem that all of these, uh, media companies faced was a lack of access to capital. Mm -hmm. You know, you can, you can, you know, grants the, the international community recognized how important the sector was, but, you know, it was kind of a grant making culture, which is, you know, small pieces of money for, yep. um, you know, very, you know, kind of small short-term projects. And you, you can't really build a company that way, you know, like any company, media companies need capital to be able to, you know, invest and grow. You know, from Sasha's experience, he also recognized that, you know, for a media company to be really independent, it needed to be able to, you know, survive on its own revenues and ideally be profitable because that's mm -hmm. the only way you can really have the power to withstand a lot of the pressures that an independent media yeah. company faces in, in one of these environments. So that's the the, the, the key insight that uh, kind of still drives um, Media de Development Investment Fund, providing access to capital for independent media companies without strings attached. But there's actually lots of money available to these companies if they're willing to you know, give up their editorial independence. And, and what we have always provided was you know, a source of capital um, that was very much aligned with their interests. You know, we don't get involved with you know, editorial decision-making at all. So now just our, our formula, there's really two pieces to it. So the first is providing capital, but the second is providing the skills and capacity to kind of leverage that capital. And you know, that became part of the formula from the first investment that was made because when Sasha and the, the folks working with him back then set out to work with their first client, you know, they asked for a business plan and what they got was one piece of paper. Right? <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> and, uh, and I can tell you from the, the point of view of the, the manager of that company, the, the most important thing on that paper was, you know, his signature at the bottom, you know, where he said, this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> and the, so it became pretty clear, you know, we needed to have the ability to, to teach people how to build business plans back then. And, you know, back then, you know, it, it often started with teaching people how to use Excel. You know, it was that level mm. of yeah. development. I mean, it was, the world has moved on quite a bit, uh, you know, and people's skill sets have uh, moved on quite a bit. Sophistication of the companies we deal with really has moved on quite a bit. But uh, back then, it, you know, we were really working on the fundamentals. So I met Sasha, and uh, that was in 1990. Six. So it was you know, shortly after uh, MDIF was formed. The first funding for the organization came from Soros and, mm -hmm. uh, and Open Society. So we were you know, kind of very close you know, organizationally. And you know, Sasha being never missing a good opportunity, <laughs> just started basically you know, sucking free legal advice out of me. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> Which I was perfectly happy to give, you know, because what, <laughs> what he was doing was so amazing. And to, to put it in context again, this, you know, the organization was built as a very specific solution to a very specific problem. Mm -hmm. And and I think the you know, part of what made it such a visionary idea was that there was no such thing as impact investing right. back then. Right. You know, the word didn't even exist. You know, mission investing didn't exist. Venture philanthropy didn't exist. I remember like it was, must have been 1999 and we were meeting with uh, the, the head of a, a foundation around funding and he reaches for this article on his desk from the Harvard Business Review. And he said, you know, this article, it talks about this thing called venture philanthropy. That's what you guys do. <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, oh, okay, there's a name for it. That's great. So um, so it was really, you know, when I heard about it, it you know, it, it for me it was kind of a revolutionary idea. And at a certain point, Sasha asked me to um, come help him run the organization, and uh, I jumped at the chance. Yeah, you know, it was a real 
for me in a way, a radical shift going from being uh, a lawyer to being a manager, let's say. And you know, we're, we're in a sense, a financing institution. We've always had a very kind of, let's say, activist uh, approach to what we do, you know, because what we're doing, we're, we're financing companies that are often under uh, incredible pressure from economic pressure and even sometimes so societal and political too, depending on what they're writing, you know? That's right. So, you know, at, at the extreme, you know, independent journalists, unfortunately, uh, often have to face threats of violence. Mm-hmm. And, but the kind of deeper, more uh, long-term threats are, are much more economic. You know, you can, it, it's, you can blow up a printing house or you can just deprive it of any income. And mm. um, at the end of the day, the result is the same. So working in these environments, especially back then, you know, it really required uh, a certain activist uh, approach, you know, so we were you know, having to figure out how to do things in countries that hadn't been done previously. So for example, in Russia, you know, as a non-bank, we were not able to do cross-border lending. And so we pioneered finance leasing in hmm. Russia, hmm. Um, you know, which is uh, effectively, it's like giving a secured loan, but it's structured as a lease. So uh, it was legally permissible. We did things like, uh, so for example, there's a, there was a media company in Croatia that had uh, a, a lot of money owed to it by the state-owned you know, newspaper distribution company, which just was saying, yeah, we're not going to give you your money. Forget it. Right. So, um, so we actually bought the debt from that company, right? So we, you know, we bought it at a small discount and then we enforced the judgment against the debt against the distribution company. Hmm. And as, and as a foreign investor, you know, you have a much more privileged position, let's say, in trying to enforce a contract in a country that's, you know, hungry for foreign investment than a, you know, an opposition media outlet. And of course, you know, when the folks we work with come under pressure, you know, we, we do whatever we can to shine a light on it and bring the international community to engage. Because actually, you know, in most of these countries, the, the best protection any independent journalist can have is the attention from the international community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it depends on the country, but in many countries that can be a somewhat effective break on a government's actions. So that was 22 years ago, right? So I started, in, so it was like beginning in 1998. You know, and the the and I have to say, from day one, it was uh, I was in love with what we were doing. Uh, when I say from day one, so when I started, the first thing I had to do is go to Prague because that's actually where the, the the main operations center for the organization mm-hmm. was. Mm-hmm. You know, to meet all of my new colleagues, and then I went across the border to Slovakia to to actually you know have my first client visit, and that's what we call our you know our you know borrowers and investors. We call them clients because that's really the relationship. That we want to have. So, and so that was to a company called, it's called Pettit Press, and it publishes SME, which um, was the you know, leading independent newspaper in the country and actually still is uh, 22 wow. years later. Wow. At the time, there was a guy named uh, Metziar who was running the country, you know, kind of classic authoritarian guy, um, populist. And um, he had driven SME. Um, from one printing house to another until finally they were being forced to print across the border in Hungary. Hmm. And, you know, this was, again, this was before, you know, you could send your, your newspaper uh, over the internet to a printing house miles and miles away. Back then you had to take your plates and put them in the back of a truck and drive there and, then, <laughs> you know, get all your newspapers printed and then, you know, drive them back. So by the time you got your, your news on the street, it would be pretty cold. And it was killing the company. So MDLF at the time, so Media Development Loan Fund, made its first loan to this company to finance a printing house. By the time I joined in 1998, they had actually already repaid their loan um, because it was incredibly successful, the whole project. So I went there and it was really my first time visiting a, a, a media company like this. And and it was a rush, you know, you kind of see it in the movies when right. you know, footage of, of, of printing presses in action. The, the And there's just something incredibly exciting about seeing, you know, all of these newspapers being churned out of these massive machines, right? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. flying down the, the conveyor belts. And, you know, it's a real industrial process. And, you know, I'm meeting the, these amazing people who, you know, were doing amazing things. It was, it was really a rush. So then I'm flying home <laughs> and I'm sitting next to this, this, this woman uh, who's Slovakian and she's, uh, she was actually a nuclear physicist. She was returning to Los Alamos where she worked. <laughs> and, and we got to talking and you know, she asked, you know, what I was doing there. And I explained 
this new job that I had. But at the time, you know, we were we were not really talking about who we were working with, right? Um, we were really trying to stay under the radar. And I couldn't say that, you know, I had just come back from visiting Smith. So she says, oh, that's amazing what you all are doing. There's this newspaper in Slovakia that you really have to know, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, uh, it's called Smith. And, you know, for my parents, you know, every day, they sit down together when they when they get the paper and they read the paper together. And for them, it's the most it's really the most important part of their day. You know, it's their only time uh, when they get kind of a window onto what's really happening around them. And what a way to start a job, right? right. So, yeah. yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> just, you know, if you want confirmation of the impact that you could potentially be having, that was that was it. And it really stuck with me. And it still feels like that's what we what we do is about we don't work with we still work with some newspapers but most of what we work with is digital media and broadcast media but it's still you know it's about keeping windows open on reality and i think all of us in this moment in time really appreciate what that means right in this age of alternative facts and a world that seems to where many people are just happy not to really base their decisions on reality even if they have the opportunity to and that's what i i wanted to kind of talk about the the maturation of, you know, the, the fund itself and, and kind of mm-hmm. you know, from, from 98 to let's say 2008, 2010, that sort of first decade is still probably mostly printed media companies, I guess. And then maybe from 2010 to now is probably all pretty much digital at this point. Sort of what is the, the balance now globally when we're talking, you know, independent media companies in, you know, Canada or you know, America or Europe, I look different than independent media companies in Uganda or Nicaragua or something like that. Is is most everybody digital now or there's still companies in your portfolio that actually do physical sort of, you know, newspapers? You know, I think I think the way you describe it is is very accurate. Um, and the 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 sector has you know transformed completely yep. when we started. You know, in, in the early days, much of the work we did was financing printing houses you know, yeah. and, and printing presses. And that's you know, the big cost, the, right? It's, it's crazy cost, it, I imagine. It, it's the big cost. And it's also the, the impact is huge. So, you know, you're, mm-hmm. you're completely mm-hmm. changing the economic potential of a company with a, a newspaper company with a printing house, because not only can they print their own stuff much more efficiently and, you know, kind of most of the printing houses we finance were the first ones in their country or region, mm. you know, the first independent, the first independent ones gave them a lot more freedom from government control. And it also offered a lot of other publications freedom from government control because these printing houses, they generally were not just printing one newspaper. They were providing that service for many other newspapers um, and magazines. So you, you really change the economic potential of the company because suddenly you have a whole new business, you know, which is printing for other people. So it was very powerful in that way. And, you know, from a lending perspective, it was great because you're, you know, one, there wasn't a lot of innovation, you know, so you could really project out. Right. There was an innovation in the printing industry, maybe every five years if you were lucky, you could really, really understand the business's potential and, you know, fairly accurately project out future cash flow and make a decision about you know, whether to lend to this company. And then you get this massive piece of equipment or maybe even the real estate for a printing house mm-hmm. to take a security. So it's, you know, kind of you know, for us, most of the risk we were taking was political risk. It wasn't so much the business risk. These days, it's very different with digital media. There, there's very little equipment to actually take a security. There's innovation, you know, virtually right. every five minutes. Right. Yeah. You know, the, the business models are changing almost year to year. So it's a it's a completely different kind of financing business, exactly as you said. And, and that really, you know, forced us to go through a pretty significant transformation of ourselves, you know, and how we worked and how we approached our work. Um, exactly at the time that you said. So really you know, 2010, 2011, when we made that shift. You know, and what's interesting is, you know, there was this, an assumption that print was dead for a long time, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, you, you get all of these analysis, you know, this is going to be the last year that a newspaper <laughs> is printed in a given country, right? And none of that has come to pass, you know, newspapers are still a business. And, you know, and often newspaper companies remain the major sources of serious journalism in a given country. But that continues to evolve. And the ones that are still out there have figured out how to say successfully transition uh, to digital media business as well. You know, there's, there's very little, I mean, it's hard for me to really think of any news organization, news business in the world that isn't also digital as well as being print if it's still 
doing print. You know, I was just looking at a uh, really interesting infographic, which was showing, you know, the top news websites in the world based on digital numbers of digital subscribers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Almost all of them were newspaper companies originally, you know, yep. still printing newspapers. Yeah. And what was really interesting was that, you know, I think there were, I guess, what, maybe 30 or I can't remember what it's 30 or 50 companies there, but out of them, you know, maybe only six of them had been founded after 1950, hmm. you know, these were all, re you know, a lot of them were from the 19th century, mm -hmm. you know, and they were still, and for example, the New York times, right. Yep. It's, it's the perfect example. You know, they were, they were, you know, on their back feet for a long time, but they you know, finally figured out you know, how to, how to make this business work for them, they're going to be around forever. <laughs> uh, they've really, you know, they're a powerhouse now. So part of what we, we, we've done is spend a lot of time helping mm -hmm. paper companies transition to the digital marketplace. And a lot of them can't, you know, it really, because of the market, what kind of newspaper audience and market companies operating in, the ability to, to thrive really varies. Sure. You know, so you look at the US, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, they're all uh, making a good go of it. It's the lo local newspapers that have been really challenged. Yep. And I think that's true uh, through much of the world. You know, it, it, it's being the national newspaper or one of the mm -hmm. national newspapers makes it far more likely that you can succeed uh, making that transition to uh, a digital first company. In terms of business models, though, they vary quite a lot. And I, you know, I think the trend that you're uh, identifying is the recent shift of charging people for content on the web. Um, so, you know, for, for a long time, there was this idea that nobody would actually pay for content. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and it was a killer for newspapers, right? Because you put up all this content, you're completely reliant on digital advertising for revenues. And it's, you know, that's not a great business, meaning that the ad pricing for digital is so much lower than what one could get for Right. newspaper ad. But that shift has really, you know, happened in relatively recently, but in a very strong way. And, mm -hmm. you know, it started with, you know, a lot of people point to things like Netflix and, uh, and, you know, Spotify, you know, things where people started to actually pay for digital content. Mm -hmm. um, and it kind of, you know, created a, a, a shift in the culture, you know, where people were willing to pay for content. The trend for getting, charging for newspaper, you know, for, for, for news content um, is really relatively recent. You know, the New York Times, in a way, I think really pioneered that with their paywall, you know, and they finally got it. Um, yep. You know, a number of folks had tried. They were one of the first ones to get it to work. Interestingly, you know, the first digital native media company that, that we worked with uh, is a company in Malaysia called Malaysia Kini. And, you know, they were, in a way, from the first generation of digital native media. So they were founded in 1999. We invested in them in 2002. And, you know, it was uh, right after the dot-com bubble burst you know, in the early 2000s, mm -hmm. you know, and again, the idea that you could make a, a business from digital advertising revenue, uh, that idea kind of burst too. And we strongly encouraged them to put up a paywall. And uh, it was a, uh, a daring move that they finally agreed to do it because nobody else had paywalls up. I think at the time it was only the Wall Street Journal and Consumer Reports, right? Yep. You know, where people are paying for something that has a lot of financial value. It's not just you're reading something interesting, you're trying to understand, you know, which car you're going to buy and, you know, what you're going to invest in. So there was some sense that that kind of content people would pay for, but for just general news content, really people, people didn't believe in it. And their, that paywall really saved that company. And it's been very successful and it continues to be you know, a major uh, source of income for the company, which is now the largest news site in Malaysia and has been for wow. probably since 2008. So we could take Malaysia Kini for an example. You know, their revenue model is like many, a mix of different kinds of revenues. And that means subscription revenue, digital advertising, you know, and, and when we say advertising and digital, there are lots of different kinds, right? So there's um, the kind that you directly sell to a company kind of in the old fashioned way. Yeah. And then this programmatic advertising, which is, you know, ads that are, you know, kind of sold in real time um, on mm -hmm. online auctions. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there's native advertising where you're actually kind of going out and creating some kind of yep. product 
uh, you know, real actual content that uh, is either, you know, in some, one way or the other sponsored by an advertiser. And so you know, Melissa Kinney does all of that. The, you know, and, it's, and a, the it's a good model. That, it's a good model, I think, to have a balance of, of everything. It's kind of key, I think, especially for a general interest yeah. uh, media company. And, and the other piece of it is events. That has mm. also become, you know, a significant revenue source for, for news organizations. And, you know, that's either events that you people pay for or that are, are sponsored by advertisers. Do you see that you know, coming back? Do you see that coming back? Just real quick, out of COVID. The events business. So you're exactly right. So that, you know, the, the whole events business, certainly live events businesses, you know, completely were crushed by COVID. What many of our clients found was, you know, it forced them to move to digital events. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for a significant number of them, uh, while their revenues may have been lower, their, the profitability was much higher, mm-hmm. right? Because you could, mm-hmm. the actual cost of putting on is much right. lower and you could get far more people attending. Um, so, you know, it's been interesting. So it's during this time of COVID, there's a, a significant segment of the companies we work with actually came out stronger, you know, and, you know, with Amazing. greater profitability during the COVID period. And part of the, and, and that's not uncommon in the media space right now. And that's partly because, you know, whenever there's a crisis, there tends to be a kind of a rush to quality information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, people, you know, you know, we talked about buying cars or making investments, you know, here you're talking about, you know, how do I stay alive? So people really want information that they can really trust and rely on. For that kind of media all over the world, you, you saw digital subscriptions increasing uh, in a very strong way. The, and uh, you know, many of the companies we work with you know, experience that as well. When we talk about paywalls and, and subscribers and, and being sort of maybe digital first, for lack of a, of a better term, as a publishing company and, or a news outlet, does high-speed internet come into play at all to where in Botswana, right, or Cambodia or Senegal, Somalia, some places like that, is, is it still difficult for them to have a digital first environment that would be uh, scalable because, you know, maybe like they just don't have sort of 4G, 5G, right? Is the infrastructure there for, for media companies in the developing worlds to really thrive? You know, at this point, I would say that, you know, mobile phones are you know, probably when anybody has any basic income, the first thing they're going to buy is a mobile phone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think that there is, you know, throughout most of the world, there, there is uh, deep penetration from mobile phones. Yep. And that's how people access the internet. Right. I mean, it's interesting in, in many countries, you know, actually Facebook is the only way that they, you know, they, yep. they yep. People equate Facebook with the internet because that's mm-hmm. how they access information. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Facebook has, you know, in, in many countries, they've provided free internet access. Right. So, they, you know, they subsidize internet access through mobile phone companies, but you, know, you can only access Facebook and things through <laughs> Facebook. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, uh, uh, but you know, that, that, that has really increased the number of people who have access to the internet. Again, I think you know, the speeds really vary and you know, not only country by country, but you know, region by region. But if you take India, for example, you know, in, over the last few, few years, mm-hmm. there's been m- massive increase in mobile phone and broadband penetration because one company brought down the, the rates significantly mm-hmm. to a point where all levels of society there could essentially afford it. And, and I think that's happening one way or another throughout most of the world. Um, there are definitely certainly places, I mean, look, what we saw here in New York in, uh, over the past year, there are lots of people in New York who can't access the internet in, in a way that's robust enough to engage in schoolwork, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, right. It, it, really, it really sucks doing homework on your phone. Right. <laughs> totally, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so, so I don't want to overstate how ubiquitous access to uh, content is. But at some level, you know, people can access information pretty, it's, it's not 100%, but it's a significant part of the world. Whether they can access independent information is totally- That was my absolute next question was, was that exact one. So there, there are, you know, kind of every year there are press freedom rankings that are, are, are put out by various organizations like Freedom House or mm-hmm. Reporters Sans Frontiers. And, you know, all of those indexes have shown that there's been a, a steady decline in access to 
independent information around the world. So at this point, I believe the last figure was something like 88% of the people in the world leave, live in countries without a free press. And you know, that, you know, how, how does that happen? Right. So on the one hand, you get the extreme case of China, you know, with what, you know, what's called the, the, the great firewall of China. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we're virtually impossible to get access to independent media in China without taking risks, you know, you know, using uh, VPNs and various other yep. you know, secure web browsers and whatnot. So it's, you know, it's possible and, and people, you know, people find a way to get to information if they want it badly enough. But that's different from it just, you know, walking down the street and having a newspaper that you can buy um, or, you know, or opening your computer and having thousands of uh, uh, choices of independently produced information. So, but that's, that's, like I said, I think that's the extreme case is the Great Firewall of China. But in other places, it's done through trend that's called media capture, Mm -hmm. right? And media capture has been around forever. It's just, I think, um, been taking a much more virulent form in recent years in places where it was hadn't been a concern, let's say. So for example, take Hungary. So this is Hungary's country in the European Union. Uh, maybe 10 years or so ago, it had a very robust free press. You know, there was something like, if I remember the number, something like 500 independent news outlets in the country. And now there's four or five. And how does that happen? And so that happens because the, the government, and so there's a, a leader in Hungary is a guy named Viktor Orban. So the Orban government has been you know, very methodically capturing the media. Um, and that means you know, either by driving them out of business, mm-hmm. and one way of doing that is by limiting uh, their access to advertising. The other way is um, forcing takeovers. And part of that, you know, that, that goes hand in hand. If you starve a company of income for long enough, they have no choice but to sell. Or, you know, if a company's owned by, uh, if, the, if a company's owner has other interests, you can put pressure on those interests and force them to sell the media. So, for example, you know, one of the the major media outlets in Hungary was owned by, uh, I believe it was a German telecom company, right? And so, in order to preserve their telecom business. In Hungary, mm-hmm. they had to right. sell their media outlet, and and that that's how media, media capture happens. It also, you know, there's in in countries like Hungary or Poland, there's in the past there was a very independent public broadcaster. You know, so when I say public broadcaster, that's you know, I guess the, the creme de la creme is the BBC, mm-hmm. right? But most countries have you know one form or another of a public broadcaster, and if it's a public broadcaster, you know, it's it's not there to be the voice of the government. It's there to you know, provide a service to the citizens of the country. And part of that is providing you know, independent and balanced news. So at a certain point, a number of governments, for example, the government in Hungary and also the current government in Poland, you know, when they got control of the public broadcaster, they changed it into a, what would normally be called a state broadcaster, right? Which is propaganda organ for the state. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've talked to a lot of people in Poland and they say that the public broadcaster there now, it's worse than it was during communist times. It takes a certain kind of form that I think really was pioneered in Russia under, under Putin. It's very virulent, attacked version of media where it's not just presenting the government's point of view, but it's really going after its opponents in very, even, I would say even disgusting ways, you know, with you know, getting into their personal lives and, you know, their, you know, sex videos, it, they really just can tear people apart. So that's also a piece of the puzzle. You know, you, you take over the public broadcaster, you force the sale of a lot of major media outlets so that they're bought by uh, your friends. Now hmm. in Hungary, they actually went even further. So a couple of years ago, all of these friends of Viktor Orban who owned all of these media companies donated all those companies to a government controlled trust. So now you've got one huh. government-controlled trust in Hungary that owns almost all of the media in the country, hundreds of media outlets. It, it, it really is starting to look- It's crazy. You know, the, way Hungary, the way Hungary looked you know, back you know, be, before the, the, the Berlin Wall came down. It's, it's, so that's been a really scary process to watch. Poland, you know, the, the, the government of Poland is very explicit that they, you know, they really applaud what Viktor Orban has done. And they're trying to follow the same model. And they're not nearly as advanced, but the path is clear that they want to travel on. And then you have this in many other countries already, you know, so it, there never was strong independent media. Mm-hmm. It was always either, you know, controlled by you know, vested, entrenched 
economic interests or political interests or you know often those things are one and the same. Do you see it getting um, do you see it getting better just because of whether it's the new generation of you know journalists or just people, right? Do you see it getting better around the world just in general of more independent media or, or just people interested in starting startup media companies than it maybe was 20 years ago, just because the technology is there and, and they have access to, to more people have access to kind of do these things, right? Well, I think that's true. And you, you, but it, there, there are limits to it. So, you know, first of all, I would say, you know, in the 2000s, for example, I think a lot of folks were able to go online and really, you know, outwit governments, you know, mm -hmm. they were, you, know, mm -hmm. you have people who are much more agile, right, right. And, and, you know, much more forward thinking, and it took a long time for some of these governments to catch up, but they have. Yeah, right. Yeah, right, right. So China is you know, exporting a lot of its technology around, you know, media control countries, but, you know, Russia, Saudi Arabia, a number of other places, you know, require companies to have their servers in country, you know, so, uh, uh, mm -hmm. um, so that it can be monitored and, and they have the ability to block various kinds of content. But the other thing is the economics. So on the one hand, yes, it's incredibly easy for an individual journalist, let's say, to get their content up. You know, again, leaving aside places like China where, you know, yeah, sure. you're subject to, you know, probably a, a good chance you'll go to prison depending on what you put up there. But technically it's very simple, you know, you can, you know, do a Substack <laughs> newsletter, very, you know, anybody can do that. Anybody could put up a, a, a post on Medium. Anybody can, you know, tweet out a newsflash um, or put up a Facebook page. So all that is very easy. The thing is, you know, there, there, I think there are, there are significant limitations to being a single journalist, which is basically a blogger, right? Sure. You know, in how much, in how much impact you can have. And the thing with a news organization is it has, you know, a lot more ability to, you know, sustain coverage over long haul. There's, you know, multiple people who can be, you know, uh, involved in covering a story. There's a whole editorial process to ensure the integrity of the content. And then, and then there's the business side of it, you know, and when I say the business side of it, I don't just mean making the money, but like, how do you distribute the content, you know? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. some content can be done, you know, a single post can go viral, right? But uh, to do that on a kind of day in and day out basis to get people to actually reach your content uh, requires a fairly sophisticated operation these days. You know, you need to really be conversant in the use of data. Mm -hmm. right? So you need to be kind of tracking in real time, you know, who's reading what articles, how do I make this, you know, article more attractive so that it'll, more people will read it and share it? You know, what subjects are people interested in right now? Like literally, what should I be putting up in the next five minutes, <laughs> um, the the you know all of that takes you know it's not something that a single individual can do. It takes yeah. an organization, and so you know on the one hand, it's it's I don't want to understate the power of a single journalist who can get a following and you know have their content you know widely circulated as a result of that. But it doesn't compare to the you know power and potential of a, a news organization where you have a group of people working at a very sophisticated level, and even the protection. Like you said, I mean, some of these places, at least you're, that's right. If you're kind of by yourself, it's, it's hard to, to fight, so to speak, in a way, right? When, you know, somebody takes something down or if, you know, you have some type of, of suit or some, whatever it might be, it's very difficult. But if you have an organization, you don't might have a legal team, right? You that's right. And the whole technology of, you know, how do you sustain a denial of service attack, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it totally. takes a certain yeah. amount of sophistication to have a setup that's, you know, built to survive that. And that, that's, you know, obviously something that happens all the time. I want to go back to, uh, we mentioned Facebook a little bit. How do just the companies you've invested in, what, how, what's their relationship like with Facebook? Do they like it? Do they love it? Do they, is it a necessary evil? You know, is it, is it respected more maybe in different areas than it is sort of in America? It's a bit in this little bad branding uh, run they're on right now. Uh, with the trust factor. Is that the same globally in, in developing countries? Is, is their relationship different, the same? Like, how do they look at Facebook as a positive, negative overall? So, you know, again, I think it's very hard to generalize. I think for, for news companies, let's, let's keep it at that level. Yep. 
I think Facebook drives everybody insane, right? <laughs> uh, no matter where you are, huh? <laughs> yeah, right. Because you know, you're if, if you're relying on Facebook as your major source of distribution, you know, a, a small tweak in their algorithm could kill your whole business, and it has in many cases. You know, it's amazing how often. And we kind of see a sudden drop in everybody's traffic and everybody's trying to figure out what's happening. And it's, you know, a, a change in the Facebook algorithm that has caused that. So I think on that level, it can really drive people crazy. And then there's, you know, the, the advertising piece. So yeah. at, at yeah. the end, end of the day, the vast, 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 vast majority of revenues from digital advertising go to Google, Facebook, and Amazon. Um, and, you know, what's left for everybody else really is, you know, crumbs in a way. Yep, yep. The kind of shift towards people paying for content is really has really been transformational though, you know, because it, it frees companies from that dependence on uh, on Facebook. And and what's interesting is it, you know, it it changes the motivations around what kind of content you're producing, yeah. right? Yeah. So yeah. If, if you're relying on something like Facebook, then it's all about shareability and vi virality. And that means content that is you know, very kind of emotional, you know, kind of bright, shiny things. Right. Whereas if your focus is on trying to produce content that people are willing to pay for, then it, it lends towards much deeper, more high value content. You know, it has to much more unique content. It's not something that's just going to tickle somebody's fancy for a moment. It's something <laughs> that somebody's going to want to feel like they're getting something day in and day out that really makes a difference to them. So from for the point of view of, you know, a high quality news outlet, it's a much better driver of revenue. You know, there's much stronger alignment between the revenue model and the work that you want to actually be doing. And, and so that's been a real boon, I think, for, for high quality news content. And it's really you know, freeing news organizations to some extent from the tyranny of, of, of Facebook. Then there are the larger issues with Facebook, you know, um, mm -hmm. you know all the privacy concerns and the abuse of social media to actually attack news outlets, you know? So, I mean, we all read about, we've all read about bots, right? That are spreading misinformation sure. um, and other ways that, you know, folks are spreading misinformation. And, and part of that is also, you know, it's not just aimed at public figures in many places that's aimed specifically at journalists or news outlets. One of the companies we work with in the Philippines is named Rappler and the, the head of Rappler and founder of Rappler, amazing journalist named Maria Ressa. So she's, I think she's got about 12 criminal lawsuits that she's fighting right now. You know, she's not allowed to leave the country and she is just vilified on social media to a massive degree. And, you know, Rappler is a digital native company, really incredibly strong on the data side. You know, and one of the things that they've, they've done is develop the capacity to really track down where these attacks are coming from. And, you know, they, they can, you know, map out how bots and, uh, troll armies are are deployed and how the information gets generated and then spread you know, throughout social media. Uh, and it's 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 a very scary picture. Since they became, let's say, public enemy number one for the the government there, Duterte, who runs that country, they you know social media has really been weaponized against them. We talk a lot about you know war being tanks and and you know military and guns and armor, right? This sort of old school way of thinking of what war is right but like this is essentially what what sort of that is right whether it's a you call it an information war or a media war or you know audience war right there, there's this dynamic of the same sort of thing right it's just not you know martin luther king walking on a bridge in, in selma and the police or the the you know local government entity you know beating with billy sticks right it's it's, it's a digital form of that in a way. I think that's true. I think it's true. And, you know, and, and, and it, it's becoming so widespread, not just, you know, versus journalists. I think that social media is being weaponized against a lot of people. I want to end on two questions. <laughs> the, the first would be the, the new sort of venture side of the company is sort of coming out. And I kind of want to talk about what exactly that is compared to sort of traditionally maybe what the MDIF has been versus now, you know, spinning off a of venture, a venture side of things. What, what does that look like? Uh, so MDIF Ventures is a new fund that we've just launched, and it is focused on uh, startup digital news companies. Mm -hmm. You know, they're ranging from you know, angel stage to Series A. 
but it, but to be honest, our our most of the comp investments will be more at that you know, early yeah. angel seed first round stage, and we've done this before. So you know, we we this is kind of building on our experience with what we called um, digital news ventures, uh, which was funds that we set up specifically for investing in innovative digital news companies. And that started, I guess we started that in 2012. And we've had some very nice successes coming out of that, both in terms of you know, content that is very powerful in terms of you know, our mission of, of supporting independent news and information, uh, but also you know, as, as, from an investment basis mm -hmm. as well. So some of the companies that we invested out of that fund in scroll.in uh, mm -hmm. is an amazing site in, in India. They are, uh, they are, they are the largest English language native digital news site in India now provided startup financing for them back in, I think it was about five years ago. Uh, we co-invested with the Omidyar network. Wow. And, you know, and it's uh, extremely high quality news reporting. And one of, I'd say, the very few news outlets that's willing to be objective and critical in terms of reporting about the Modi government. Another company that we funded out of there is called Katadata. It's a, a company in Indonesia that was founded by some of the leading investigative journalists in, in the country that were focused on uh, business corruption. And it's an, it is a uh, uh, focused on you know, kind of deep reporting on business and economic policy. And they, they kind of revo like revolutionized the use of infographics in Indonesia. Mm. Uh, and they have been, I'd say, incredibly successful and influential uh, with their reporting and analysis. Then there's a company in, in Brazil that we financed called Colab. And Colab is you know, somewhat different. So you know, part of you know, when, we when we made this very conscious shift to focusing on digital media, we also felt it was important to you know, be very open to thinking about what does news and information really mean. Mm. So you know, up until then, you know, everything we did was journalism and almost all kind of general interest news companies. You know, and what we were recognizing that with digital media, the whole concept of news and information was really changing. And we mm -hmm. wanted to be open mm -hmm. to focus more on, you know, why not, not supportive independent journalism per se, but more furtherance of the reasons why we were supporting independent journalism in the first place. So we were looking for companies that were using news and information in a way that created you know, advanced accountability, transparency, democratic participation, democratic debate, access to information for populations that you know, were not being addressed. And so the companies that uh, we invest in now, while still, you know, we, we certainly invest in a lot of general interest news organizations, but we also work with companies that are based on uh, community developed news, you know, where the, the information is not being generated by journalists, but being mm -hmm. uh, generated mm -hmm. by citizens. Then you know, social networks that give people the opportunity to explore policy and other parts of their lives in a way that they couldn't previously. So for example, in India, we recently invested in a company called Shiro's. It's a social network for women. And I can tell you, I've actually never myself experienced it because they are have figured out a very effective way of making sure that no men can participate. It was a, <laughs> it's an extremely safe space for women in India. It gives them a platform for you know, sharing all kinds of information that you know I think women were not really comfortable sharing previously in, uh, in any kind of media. So certainly women's health issues, mm -hmm. um, issues around gender discrimination. It, they also you know, have a whole uh, uh, platform for helping women uh, who are working from home you know, sell products that they produce or connecting you know, women who are working from home with you know, companies that need distance employees. Um, so it's really a very holistic approach to how do you help empower women. The you know that's something that uh, you know I don't think that we would have even considered financing 15 years ago because it wasn't there, there's there's there is journalism there, but it's certainly not a major the major driver of of the company. The so Colab is uh, uh, an urban app. You know, so it's uh, in a way it's a it's a social network, but more than anything, it's it's a tool for connecting citizens with local governments. Hmm. Um, so it lets people you know, identify problems at the very you know, kind of granular level, like starting you know, at the level of potholes, 
right? Yeah. Um, but then it also, you know, going to instances of corruption, it's been, it's being used for, so when um, DICA was you know, spreading yep. around Brazil very dramatically, uh, it was used as an app for people to identify where there were areas where mosquitoes were breeding, you know, and they could report that to the government so that those areas could be mitigated. With, with COVID, it, it's been used to kind of map the spread of COVID mm -hmm. um, around Brazil. And at the same time, you know, it let you report that you are sick with COVID, and then it will connect you with uh, a medical professional that can help you. So it's, it's been used for participative budgeting, um, which hmm. I think is a really interesting yeah. uh, uh, phenomenon. And, uh, you know, it, 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 they continue to, I think, innovate in ways that they can uh, use this app, which has a fantastic user interface, which is part of what makes it so successful, <laughs> to find ways to connect people and their local governments in a way that is- That's interesting, yeah. Uh, empowers, empowers citizens. And, you know, one of the things, we had looked at a lot of apps like this, you know, around the world. What made Colab very different was that the data belonged to Colab and was completely publicly accessible, where you know, most of the other versions of this, the data belongs to the government. Mm, right. right? And, and the government decides what people see. So with, with, with Colab, that's not the case. Uh, MDF Ventures, you know, these are the kinds of companies that we're really trying to uncover, unearth, and, and you know, help develop. So uh, I'll end kind of, we talked about a lot of history can, can be a rough thing, right? To, to look at and, and kind of overcome. And it always takes you know, special individuals and visionaries to kind of get us through certain times. I say that with, with sort of all the maybe negative aspects of, of media and maybe the, the faults of its own that it's had uh, over the years in, in some areas and with some companies. What are you optimistic about? And it sounds like, you know, some of the companies just labeled like that, that is sort of a reason to be optimistic that a lot of these issues around whether it's misinformation, the negative spread of of whatever type of, of content or government sort of lashing out or there's a war between publishers and, and, and whatever, like there's all these different things going on. What, what are you sort of optimistic about? Because you're sort of in it day to day and, and you see, you know, the amazing people around the world kind of, you know, grinding it out day to day. What, what are you optimistic about? You know, let's say the next decade to come. I think what I'm op optimistic about is, you know, one thing when I started doing this that really surprised me was the ability for people to find a way to do this kind of work, meaning independent news reporting in environments when one would not think it possible. Going back to the beginning of this conversation, B92, the radio station that you know, <laughs> yeah. our founder, Sasha Virginia, helped found. At that time, it would I would not have, you know, coming from the outside, I would not have believed that it would be possible to operate a radio station like that in Serbia under the control of Milosevic. You know, at one point they were forced off the air and they they, but they still found a way to, again, they were very innovative. This is in the 90s and they were broadcasting over the internet. Kind of fundamental desire of people to report on the truth and for other people to want to know what the truth is. That's what gives me optimism in a sense. At the end of the day, people find a way to do both those things. It may require a lot of people taking a lot of risks, but at the end of the day, there are opportunities to triumph. Amazing, Holland. Thank you so much for, for taking the time. I always appreciate individuals taking time out, out their day to, to kind of chat about, you know, what they're doing and how they see the world and how they're impacting it from, from their point of view, you know, and I always say consumers and allocated or capitals are, are the two most important people in the ability to change the world in a lot of different sectors, you know, keep, keep finding, you know, amazing people and, and allocate capital towards them, you know, and as consumers, we need to, you know, purchase from companies we believe in and who are doing it the right way. So again, appreciate your time and best of luck to, to you and the rest of the team going forward. Well, thank you. It was really fun talking to you. This is, this was, I really enjoyed it. Thank you.